Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there. And Jerry somewhere. We lost her. <laughs> I think she wandered off. Yeah. But this is Stuff You Should Know, regardless. The Lost Nazi Gold Edition. The legend of Curly's gold. <laughs> if Curly was a white nationalist. <laughs> well, who's to say he wasn't? I don't I I don't know. He Jack Palin seems like the kind who would have beat up white nationalists for fun as like a hobby, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, we we can't get into the super ins and outs, but as you know, my brother worked on The Legend of Curly's Gold and Jack Jack Palance was a tough SOB. Yeah. I hear he used to do shots of nails. Yeah, he, I mean, he wasn't a jerk, I wouldn't say, but it just sounded like he was just sort of a a very cantankerous old fella to work with. That's so funny, man, because, I mean, if you at the end of the day, he's an actor. I know. <laughs> like, you're, you're an job actor. on the dude. earth. <laughs> it's not like you, you weld machine guns or something like that. Give me a break. You're an actor. Yeah, like Clint Eastwood's not really tough. Well, actually, that's not true. <laughs> uh, is he? <laughs> oh, sure. Probably. He's got He's got to be. At the very least, he's been acting like it's so long he's developed. Yeah, yeah. It's probably like a callus, you know what I mean? Where it just yeah. kind of forms and stays. A callus. It's the callousness of toughness that an yeah, actor will form. <laughs> I don't think Clint Eastwood whines about a hangnail. Let's just say that. No. Like, no, like we do. That'd be pretty disappointing. I actually was whining about a hangnail to myself the other day. <laughs> of course. But I'm not an actor. <laughs> I'm a podcaster, Chuck. No, we have a TV show that proves that. And I'm <laughs> speaking for both of us. <laughs> Ouch. I thought I did some good work. I thought you did a better job than I did, actually. I think we both did a much better job than you remember. All right. So um, if you hate Nazis and you're like, it's been a while since I was given a, a, a reason to hate Nazis, a new one, uh, rejoice. Because we're about to give you another one. At least I didn't really realize this to this extent. Did you? You know, I knew about Nazi gold and that they took things, mm -hmm. but I didn't know that it was almost one big people killing and world robbing operation. Yeah, that's the thing. That's the new thing to hate them for. Not only were they murderers, they were also just common thieves as well. I mean, thieves on one of the greatest scales anyone's ever seen, but thieves nonetheless. Um, because I'm an exceptional thief. Be uh, who was that? Michael Caine? No. Die Hard. They called him a common thief, and he goes, oh, I'm an exceptional thief. Right. Rodney Hans Gruber. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine? Oh, I can't wait till technology oh, gets like advanced enough that you can just insert whoever into whatever character, and they'll say the same lines and everything. Uh-huh. That'd be great. That's the first one I'm doing, is Rodney Dangerfield is Hans Gruber. <laughs> He would have been wonderful. That scene where he uh, he's fooling him into thinking he he was one of the party goers, <laughs> and he goes, "What's your name?" Oh, it's Bill Clay. You're yeah, right. oh, that's what it is. Oh, don't shoot me. <laughs> Come on, nobody shoots me. I got no respect. That's pretty good. Pretty good. Oh boy. Okay, so um, the Nazis were thieves, not just because they they looted and plundered like the countries that they occupied but that they did it because they were broke to start off with. That's what truly makes them thieving 
SOBs is that their whole jam, this whole war, world war that they started, they didn't have the resources financially or uh, industrially to actually carry out this war. They had to go steal to fund their role in World War II, which they started. That's right. They, uh, you point out here, you put this together. Good stuff. Thanks. Uh, that in 1923, they had hyperinflation such that in November of that year, it cost 80 billion marks to buy a loaf of bread. Is that right? Yeah, which sounds like a lot on its own. But if you consider <laughs> that earlier that year in January, a loaf of bread cost 250 marks. Yeah. So the price of bread went from 250 marks to 80 billion marks in less than a year. But isn't that just a way of saying that nobody bought bread? No, it meant it, it's a way of saying that their money was totally worthless. Remember it happened sure. in Zimbabwe? Oh, yeah. I can't remember what episode it was. Maybe how much money is there in the world? We talked about hyperinflation. I think so. That but, was staggering. It was staggering. And the same thing happened in 1923 in the Weimar Republic. And this is the the state of the German economy that the Nazis rose to power in because, you know, that's one of the reasons they were able to rise to power and fascism was able to take over because the country and the economy was in such dire straits that this idea of like, hey, everybody get in line behind this guy because he's going to lead us out of it. That's how. That's essentially one way that Hitler and the Nazis were able to rise to power. But that also means that he inherited a terrible economy and he had to figure out what to do. Not only a terrible economy, Chuck, but they, Germany lacks natural resources that you would need to, fund, to, to start a war machine too. Yeah. They, they have uh, no oil. Nope. They don't have mineral deposits that you can make really fine metals out of. Yeah. They've got sauerkraut. They have sauerkraut. They have a lot of beer, too, in their to their credit. But, you know, if that's all you got, you need more to fight a war with. Yeah, so what happened was they um, they had what was called the Reichsmark, which was the, the monetary unit of the Third Reich. And there were five neutral countries that declared during World War II, like, we're not going to trade in Reichsmarks. So Hitler and Germany said, well— you know what's always valuable anywhere is gold, and let's start taking it from anywhere and everywhere we can get it. Yeah, and gold in particular, it's what's called um, a very fungible commodity. Like, y- you can you can trade just about anything for gold, right? If you have gold, people will give you whatever you want. You can use it to buy oil. You can use it to buy guns. You can use it to fund terrorism. You can use it to back your own currency. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of stuff you can do with gold. But in particular, in World War II, if you were the the Third Reich, the Nazi regime, you needed to use gold because these neutral countries couldn't accept Reich marks by agreement. But also, the Reich's marks were, were worthless anyway. So if you wanted to buy a bunch of guns, you needed some gold. And because Germany at the time only had about 25 tons of gold in its reserves, which sounds like a lot, but as we'll see, is a paltry amount of gold compared to what they looted and pillaged and took. Um, They they needed some gold. And so, yeah, they started looting it. And the first place they turned, Chuck, was Austria. Yeah. How much gold did you say they had? They had 25 25 metric, from what I understand, 25 metric tons of gold in the reserve. Germany did at the outset of um, World War II. All right. Well, this will drive home how much that is. They looted 15 tons, just 10 tons less, from the citizens, Jewish citizens 
of Vienna, Austria. Yeah. From from the capital city only, they looted 15 tons of gold from Jewish citizens. Just citizens, uh, like you said. Oh, yeah. And that's um, – those are just people. So the, the Central Bank of Austria, they got 100 tons of gold. So right there – Four times what they had in reserve. Yeah. And then they said, hey, you know that uh, six tons of gold that you're trying to send away to England to keep safe from us? Uh-huh. We're, bring that back here, too. We want that. Yeah, they did. So just from Austria alone, they got 121 uh, tons. Yes. To add to their existing 25 tons. It was a huge deal that kickstarted the Nazi war machine into high gear. It was a big coup. Austria wasn't expecting it. No one was expecting it. And so other countries in Europe suddenly like gulped and they were like, we need to, we need to take this as advance warning, basically. We don't want to become like Austria. And they triggered, Chuck, the largest physical transfer of wealth that the the world, the planet, has ever seen. Yeah, because I didn't know this, and it's kind of cool that, um, you know, countries that are, are friendly to one another will help each other out like this. Yeah. Uh, you can say, hey, U.S., you've got Fort Knox there. I've heard that's a pretty safe place to keep gold. Um, we're England, so can we send you a bunch of that to keep for us? And just, you know, uh, we'll make a receipt out so we know how much there is. <laughs> An IOU. And you promise not to spend any of it. Right. And the, the U.S. and Canada, um, early on at least, did things like this. They accepted huge gold shipments. There was a operation in 1940 called Project Fish mm-hmm. where the U.K. was sending – or Britain was sending 1,500 metric, uh, metric tons of gold uh, to the U.S. to store in Fort Knox. Yeah, and in 2019 dollars, the amount that they sent – on slow boats through the Atlantic, which, by the way, were infested with U-boats uh, by 1940, was worth $166 billion in today's dollars. And it got there somehow. Yeah, not one of those ships was sunk, astoundingly. Isn't that nuts? Crazy. Well, they didn't know, clearly. So, um, they, they sent, so Britain sent that, uh, 1,500 metric tons. Russia... They were like, we're just going to take care of ourselves. They evacuated a bunch of stuff from um, their stockpiles. They sent 2,800 tons of gold from its banks to a location in the Ural Mountains for safekeeping. They also sent two other national treasures, too. The embalmed corpse of Nikolai Lenin and um, artwork from the Hermitage Museum. Those yeah. three, those were the three things they prized the most to to um, transfer by train to the Ural Mountains to stash until the war was over. So, all told, if you want to add it up, during the course of World War II, uh, the Nazis stole at least that we know of four hundred million American dollars in gold from countries they occupied, and another one hundred and forty million dollars in gold from people, largely. Um, Jewish people from their homes, uh, people that were imprisoned in concentration camps. Yeah. They stole, it was a very meticulous thing that they did. They would raid their homes. They wouldn't just round people up. They would go to their safety deposit boxes. They would rip their uh, dental fillings out of their teeth such that it even got the name tooth gold, son gold. Um, and not that didn't, you know, that covered everything that they stole from people, not just the gold from teeth that covered people's wedding rings and their jewelry and their uh, parts of eyeglasses and other things like that. It's just unbelievable how much gold they looted from concentration camp victims. Yeah, especially when you step back and look at it like 
that Germany really needed the money. The Third Reich needed the money. They were just robbing, robbing and murdering. That's what they were yep. doing. You know, it really kind of puts it into perspective more. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Nazis were the worst, dude, and still are. Nazis are the worst. <laughs> so most of that gold that was stolen um, from occupied countries, um, I, I didn't see how many tons it was, but what would you say? Generally, the figure I've seen is about 500 to $600 million in 1940s dollars Yeah, um, stolen. And most of it was put into the Reichsbank, which is Germany's central bank, um, kind of like its Federal Reserve. And there are different branches throughout the country. And, you know, the gold was kind of distributed here or there. But um, as, as the war kind of moved on, it was moved more and more into the central Reichsbank in Berlin. Until 1945, and there was a bombing raid on Berlin, on Germany, and they said, we need to get this gold out of here and into secret locations. And so the gold from the Reichsbank, um, hundreds of millions, today billions and billions worth of dollars worth of gold was moved to places where no one had any idea, secret locations that weren't banks in Germany. Yeah, so this would set off... um I mean, people are still looking for Nazi gold today. Yeah. And and not just walking around with a metal detector, but people are, some people are putting a lot of money into looking for Nazi gold. And one of the big reasons is A, like you just said, they, we know that they moved it at some point. Right. And B, uh, in April of 1945, there were some military police uh, patrolling around the town of Merkers. And they questioned a couple of French women who had been displaced. And they said, in French, I would imagine, <laughs> that they saw gold being stored in a potassium mine near the town. And the, uh, the, the ar- MP said, sacre bleu. I mean, <laughs> holy cow. And the army investigates this, and they found the, uh, it's, it's famous now, the Merkers Mine Treasure, mm-hmm. which was a hoard of gold. There was a room covered in 7,000 marked bags of gold coins, gold bars, gold jewelry, mm-hmm. valued at about $238 million. $1,945. So this was a signal to everyone like, wow, the legend of Curly's gold is real. Yeah. Yeah. Because this is only about half the money. So uh, let's let's get our metal detectors out. Yeah. I mean, this idea that the Nazis hid gold in mine shafts or all sorts of different places was proven by that Merkers mine treasure, that they did this and there were substantial amounts to be found. That was $238 million worth, but they stole 500 to $600 million worth, yeah. which means that there is a substantial amount of gold unaccounted for. And that is what has fueled treasure hunters to look for what today would be billions of dollars worth of gold that was lost and scattered and spread after World War II. And I say, Chuck, I have a proposal for you. I bet I know what it is. Pie. Look- <laughs> oh. What kind what's your favorite kind of pie? Oh, I really love a key lime. Yeah. It's hard not to go with key lime. Okay, but what about just like a standard traditional fruit pie? They're really tough to beat. Like a good cherry pie? Mm, if I'm going fruit pie, it's going to be an apple crumble for sure. Okay. I used to be in that same uh group with you until you had the sweetest cherry pie. Yep. Warrant Warrant talked me into trying it, and I uh, loved it. Cherry pie is actually as good as the song makes it sound. (laughs) 
Wow. All right. We'll be right back. Okay. Want to learn about a pterosaur and call it pterodactyl? How to take a perfect poop and all about fractals? Genghis Khan, Attila the Hun, the Lizzie Border murders and the cannibal runs. Don't explain everything to your brain. Explodes. It's Chuck and Josh. This stuff you should know. Word up, Jerry. She's my cherry pie. Yeah, I've tried it with cheese, like they say, but it's not very good. I think that's typically apple pie that's supposed to have cheese on it. So I, you know, I cher- just like straight cherry pie. <laughs> cherry pie, uh, cool drink of water. It's a sweet surprise. Yep, I've tried it with a cool drink of water, too. It's good. It's better with just water than, say, like Coke, because Coke's sweet taste competes with the sweetness of the cherry pie. So they're, they're pretty much right on, except for the cheese. They say it'll make a grown man cry. <laughs> I'm here to to tell you that's the truth. <laughs> oh boy, that song and that video, so dumb, but also very titillating for a very young Chuck. You know, um, have you seen the Rush documentary? Oh, sure. Did you know that Sebastian Bach from Skid Row, it was Skid Row, right? He was, well, Warren saying Cherry Pie, but yeah, yeah. Sebastian no, Bach no. was Skid Row. I know. Okay. But like, it's just a huge leap from Skid Row to Warren. Give me a break. <laughs> But Sebastian Bach was from Warrant, right? Uh, no, no, no. He was Skid Row. Oh, that's what I mean. I think, yeah, Warrant was Janie <laughs> Lane, right. if yes. I'm not mistaken. Yeah, you're right, man. You got it. The uh, poor man's Brett Michaels. <laughs> yeah, in a way. So, and sorry, Janie, I, I really didn't mean that, but I couldn't leave it. Um, the the But Sebastian Bach from Skid Row is one of the greatest and longest standing Rush fans of all time. That's right. He was all over that. Yeah, I think he was... He joined their fan club in like seventh or eighth grade, he said. And I love that right now somewhere Brett Michaels is walking around playing that on repeat to his family. Did you hear that? Did you hear what Josh said? <laughs> he, he thinks I'm better than the Skid Row guy. No, you mean Warrant. It doesn't matter. <laughs> All right. So um, we're talking about Nazi gold. And we were saying before we started talking about Warrant and everything that, um, that, that there is gold that is unaccounted for, that was stolen by the Nazis, that just kind of vaporized after the war. Gold's not supposed to do that. It's one of the things that people love about gold is it doesn't just vaporize into thin air. It's really easy to keep track of if you want to. And so Uh people started looking for gold or looking for clues. And one of the big clues that people started following was local rumors and legends. Like in Merkers, there were plenty of rumors and, and legends that there was gold hidden in a mine nearby. In um, Dimdar Hills. Exactly. And they, they so the people, people hearing local legends has really kind of fueled hunt for, hunts for Nazi treasures for almost a century now. Yeah, so um, we're going to go through a bunch of these. There's one called Lake Toplets. Yeah. Uh, like it's a very lovely place. I'm sure you looked up pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, but people and treasure hunters have been looking for this gold in Lake Toplitz ever since. Uh, and this is very much fact. A bunch of Nazis retreated there in the Austrian Alps in the final months of the war. Uh, U.S. troops were closing in fast, and Germany was about to collapse. And so they transported a bunch of boxes to this lake. Uh, military uh, military vehicles, and then horse-drawn wagons even, and they dumped them in the lake. So I think that part is definitely true, right? The, uh, there's, yes. From what I could tell, it was reported on like that is fact. Right, what what was in the boxes was yes. what's up for, for um, debate. 
Exactly. Some people say that's the Nazi gold, yep. about five and a half billion dollars worth. Uh, other people said, um, no, I think some of this stuff are documents um, where they uh, they were basically confiscated from Jewish victims about where their assets were hidden and what Swiss bank accounts they could loot, maybe. Yep. I saw, and, I saw also artwork. Um, sure. They think that it was sealed artwork. Um, also, there's a rumor that there's 300 pounds of morphine in, oh, wow. in th- those boxes that was contributed by, I think, Albania's president um, because he didn't want it to fall into the hands of the Allies. Well, one thing they know was down there because uh, they actually found some of these. Yeah, a lot of in them. Ni- in 1983 was Hitler had the idea at one point, hey, let's sabotage various countries by creating counterfeit money of those countries. Yeah, it's a pretty smart plan for a dirty Nazi. I know. So they created um, just hundreds of million dollars worth of British pound notes. And in 1983, a German biologist, by accident, discovered a lot of these British pounds in the lake. What did we talk about that in, like, how counterfeiting works, maybe? Maybe. It does sound familiar, though, for sure. We definitely talked about that plan. And remember, there was, like, a um, a, uh, a Jewish printer who was a, a Holocaust um, prisoner, a, a prisoner mm-hmm. of a concentration camp, I can't remember which one, who turned out to be, like, this master counterfeiter. Yeah. Like, because the Nazis trained him to or forced him to. It was, If I remember correctly, it was our counterfeiting episode. Yeah, and in 1959, I talked about the 1983 find, but in 59, uh, they recovered 700 million pounds of mm-hmm. these counterfeit notes uh, from that lake. So some people say that's all that was down there. Um, other people say there may still be gold down there, and Austria actually still to this day has a problem about 10 divers a year illegally dive in that lake looking for that treasure. Yeah, and what's interesting about this lake, aside from the fact that there might be Nazi treasure in it, which is interesting enough to make the lake remarkable and noteworthy, but in addition to that, this lake has a kind of a strange um, hydrology in that the top half of it is freshwater, the bottom half is saltwater, and they're separated by density. And in the middle of these two layers is a like a layer, a floating layer of ancient logs that have fallen into the lake and been preserved over time. And so you can only dive so far before you hit this layer of logs. And some divers, I think five divers have at least have died in this lake looking for Nazi gold. And at least one of them got tangled up in this layer of logs. It's a really dangerous place to dive. But the fact that you can't really see past this layer of logs is one of the things that keeps people coming back and keeps this legend alive because they can't thoroughly search this lake and show conclusively, no, there's no gold here. Leave this place alone. Stay away. Amazing. It is pretty amazing. And then the other thing about it too is this is a really remote location that was used by Nazi officers, high-ranking Nazi officers, and for missile testing. It seems like a really odd place just to dump counterfeit pound notes yeah like you could dump those just about anywhere so i don't know maybe there is something to it you gonna get your scuba gear ready (laughs) i got my flippers on already (laughs) you can't see but i've got them on all right uh we're gonna move now to um an eastern german town along the czech border uh called deutsch katherinenberg 
Nice. It's, it's it sort of looks like the alphabet when it's on a on a page. It's a lot of letters in a row. Yeah. But uh, there are people there that think not only is there gold here, but uh, possibly the amber room, which was this. Uh, you just look up pictures of the amber room. Yeah. Uh, room. It's pretty amazing. This yeah. chamber of um, honey and linseed and cognac infused amber panels, uh, gold frame mosaics. Uh, marble, precious stones, and it was a gift of Prussian King Frederick Wilhelm I to Russia's Peter the Great, once called the Eighth Wonder of the World, and it disappeared during World War II. Yeah, the Nazis plundered it from Russia, from the USSR, and they took it back to Germany, back to uh, Königsberg, or Königsberg, which was, I think, now a time or part of... Um, of Russia again, but at the time during World War II, it was part of Germany or Prussia. And they had it on public exhibit for like four or five years. And then at the end of the war, it just vanished and no one's seen it since. And there's a lot of people who say, well, it was destroyed in air raids. Other people say it was sunk on the, you know, on a ship that was secretly carrying it. Um, It's just lost. But there's a pair of treasure hunters at Deutsch Katharinenberg um, who searched in that area because they were sure that, among other things, the amber room panels were were buried there in that town. Yeah, and this is um, this is probably the worst ending to a potentially cool story ever. But <laughs> there was there was a pair of searchers um, searching for this stuff. One of them's father was a German Air Force officer in World War II, mm-hmm. and in his personal notes, this son thought that he'd found the exact coordinates of this treasure. So he got together with another treasure hunter who was uh, another German. He was a mayor, in fact, of a nearby town. And they thought that they had discovered through radar this big rectangular underground space about 60 feet down. And when I was reading this, dude, it was so juicy. I was like, oh boy, what happened? <laughs> they didn't ever tell anyone. The, 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 no one knows if they found any treasure. They didn't say anything about it. Apparently, they had an acrimonious split in 2008, and that's just sort of the end of the story. Yeah, I guess the other treasure hunter was staying in the mayor's town, and the mayor kicked him out of town. It was that acrimonious. Wow. So that's it. The last I heard was that they they didn't find anything in 2008, or they didn't ever search for it. Right. So Yeah, it was a little lame, but worth putting in there, I think. Oh, no, it's worth putting in there. It's just... uh... It has no good resolution. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, no. But you read a lot of fiction, so you can deal with that, right? That's right. Okay. So in Poland, uh, south, uh, southeastern, southwestern Poland, in a little corner down there, there's something, uh, there's a range of mountains called the Owl Mountains. And there's a long standing and widespread rumor that's that's been there for a very long time. I would say roughly since around the end of the world, the Second World War, that would be my guess, that there is a ghost train, a Nazi ghost train, loaded with jewels, gold, weapons, art, basically everything you can think of that the Nazis would have plundered or pillaged, loaded onto this train, driven into a tunnel in the mountain, and left there, hidden, and that it's still there. And um, people have been looking for it for a very long time again, since probably about the end of World War II. But the thing that's kept this treasure hunt alive, Chuck, is there really is a vast, unmapped network of tunnels in the Owl Mountains that the Nazis dug there in World War II. Yeah, so again, some of this is based in fact, so that's what'll keep any 
sort of urban legend alive if, if part of it is true. Mm-hmm. And they did. They they dug these tunnels of mine shafts between 43 and 45. It was called the Reise Project, which means giant in German. And no one knows why. Some people say it might have been um, one of their weird secret weapons programs. Yeah. Uh, some people say it may have been potentially where Hitler was going to hole up for his last stand. Sure. But it was very, very secretive, even among the SS, because if you worked on this tunnel, you had to sign a confida- uh, confidentiality agreement, which just sounds funny for some reason. Right. I thought everything about the SS was so uh, secretive, it would just be implicit. But Right. Well, they, and what are they going to do? Like, take you to court that you violated your NDA or something? I, it's, well, it, it is odd, isn't it? You know what they would do. Yeah, they just shoot you. I wouldn't think yeah, that you would need exactly. a signed agreement for that. These are the Nazis we're talking about, you know? Yeah. So they were not allowed to have their family members within uh, 40 kilometers uh, radius of this area. And these tunnels were dug uh, by forced labor from concentration camps nearby. Yeah. And might have been a place for gold and may still be, but the Soviets ruined all that in 1945 when they came knocking at the door and the Nazis fled and basically blew up their own uh, tunnels behind them. Yeah, and I want to say there's a really good New Yorker article about the hunt. I think it's even called the hunt for Nazi gold about this particular legend and people looking for it. And they they take a second. I think it's really worth um, pointing out here too is – you know, people who get who start looking for treasure, no matter what the provenance of the treasure is, um, just get so wrapped up in the treasure and the legends and the myths and everything that it's yeah. easy to forget things like, well, you're running around a tunnel network that was dug by people who were literally worked to death over the yeah. course of weeks. They were worked that hard. They died digging these tunnels that hold maybe this legendary treasure that is the only thing you can focus on when you're talking about that. And, and that's definitely like a... a a part of the a problem that comes along with the job is, you know, forgetting, like look, having blinders on that you forget the reality of the situation. It's definitely, it's important to remember this, that, you know, some of this gold we're talking about was pulled from the teeth of dead Holocaust victims, you know? Yeah, you it's like, remember uh, that too. it's like Bill Paxton in Titanic. He needed that reminder from the old lady, like, you're all pumped up looking for this jewel, yeah, like people died. People died here, man. Yeah, let's get it together, Paxton. R.I.P. Yeah, that was so jarring when you told me that that first time, few few months back. Did I break you that news? You did. You broke it hard. Ugh. So, uh, according to this legend, as far as the Owl Mountains go, there was this ghost train, like you said, and it was a freight train loaded with all kinds of valuables, artwork, uh, jewels, gold bullion, right. bars of gold. And that they drove that thing in this thing, and it never came out in those tunnels. And uh, the other part of this um, story that is rooted, in fact, is there were Nazi trains that carried tons and tons of gold and valuables and jewelry and paintings. Uh, There was one in particular called the Hungarian Gold Train that was intercepted by Allied forces in 1945. So you got a real train that happened. Right. You've got these real tunnels that were dug, right? And all of a sudden, this rumor of the ghost train takes root. Yeah, the idea that those two things are, are have come together in the Owl Mountains, though—that's the thing that's never been shown to be true. That's right, and not from a lack of looking. No, not at all. No, there's a lot of people looking for that there. Um, the uh, this one's actually my favorite, weirdly, 
probably because it's a shipwreck. I'm just so fascinated by shipwrecks. So the, the ship I'm talking about is called the SS Minden, and it was a German merchant vessel. And uh, back in, I think, 1939, it was disabled by the, the British Royal Navy off of the coast of Iceland, right? Yeah. And what, what's so mysterious about this is that the, the Minden's ship register shows that it was just carrying um, resin from Brazil, I didn't see what kind of resin, but you can do all sorts of industrial stuff with resin from making adhesives to plastics to whatever. Um, And then that was it, right? But the thing that makes the sinking of the Minden so mysterious is that the ship's captain, rather than let it fall into British hands, sunk it himself. And he sunk it in 7,700 feet of water off the Icelandic coast, and that's where it lay undiscovered until I believe 2017 when a mysterious ship showed up and started um, looking around the Icelandic coast and and it believes that it found it. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a little odd to sink a ship full of resin only. Right. Uh, It raises a little bit of suspicion. Like you said, even though you can do some things with it, it kind of stuck out to me as like, hmm, what else is on that boat? Uh, But yeah, in 2017, the Coast Guard in Iceland uh, boarded a vessel uh, of the seabed constructor. <laughs> it's like an <laughs> unnervingly bland name. It's so boring. Yeah. It's not like the, uh, well, now I can't, all boat names are kind of dumb. The Hercules of the sea. <laughs> That's what I would name my boat. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Um, so they intercepted it. They said, hey, what are you guys doing here? And they said, oh, well, um, this boat has been leased by a group of British folks who are searching for the wreck of the SS Minden. And they were like, what? (laughs) (laughs) They're like, haven't you heard that that was just full of resin? And they said, clearly not, because we're spending $100,000 a day to lease this boat, which frankly is not that great of a deal, but we couldn't talk them down any. Yeah. So that, I mean, if someone is spending $100,000 a day, that means, that makes me think they know something that we don't know. Yeah, and so the Icelandic press actually reported that they think that the, they know something we don't know. So much so that they, they interviewed the crew, and the crew said the official story is that they're looking for uh, a couple hundred million dollars worth of gold that they believe was hidden in the safe on that ship. But that the real story, the real prize for what they're looking for, is only known to a handful of people, high-ranking people, on the boat. Yeah, and what that is it was that, man? Left at that, which, man, the Icelandic press knows how to how to spin a mystery, if you ask me. Yeah, I mean, that really added this extra air of mystery on top of everything else, which is, oh, sure, we think there's $100 million plus in gold, but we're really there for another secret reason. Yeah, if if— a hundred million dollars worth of gold is your decoy cover story, man. You're on to something <laughs> impressive. I can't wait That's until really they good. raise that thing because, from what I could tell, uh, everything everything pointed to the fact that they did successfully find the Minden. That that is the Minden they found. But right. as far as I know, they have not gone down and salvaged it at all. Get James Cameron on it. Who knows? Maybe I mean the Amber Room was sunk, and maybe it happened to be on the SS Minden. So maybe we'll have the Amber Room back in the next ten years. Um, well, hey, man, you said today's magic second ad break word, James Cameron, which means we're now <laughs> obligated to take our second message break. Do you want to take it now or shall we have taken it three minutes ago? No, let's take it now. Okay. We'll be right back, everybody. 
Wanna learn about a pterosaur and call it pterodactyl? How to take a perfect poop and all about fractals? Skank is con. Attila the Hun. The Lizzie Borden murders and the cannibal runs. Don't explain everything to your brain. Explode. Just chuck. And John. This stuff you should know. Word up, Jerry. All right, Chuck. So there's places where you can physically go to search for legendary gold. You can also just enter the international gold trade and you can turn up, alarmingly, Nazi gold that was kind of lost, you could put it, after the war. Yeah, this is really interesting. Uh, In 1946, as part of reconstruction and restoration all over Europe, there was a committee forum called the uh, Tripartite Gold Commission, so great. or the Tripartite Commission for the Restitution of Monetary Gold, and Even this is formed in, uh, by the U.S., by the French, and by the Brits. And basically, the whole jam here was: let's find all this gold, let's account for all this gold that we discovered mm-hmm. as allies, and then let's redistribute it back to where we, if we can trace it, such to where it was looted. Um, to the banks and central banks, and even if we can find out human individuals, that yeah, would be even better. That and the it was strictly to I believe strictly to the European central banks that had a claim to have it having been looted from after the war. And then in the late nineties, there was a real push to try to um, compensate the the survivors and the heirs of the Holocaust who also had been robbed. Too. So a lot of gold that some countries still had claim on as part of this um, uh, London conference on Nazi gold that was held in 1997, uh, uh, some, of the, some of the countries that said, well, actually, we're still owed a lot of this gold. They said, OK, well, we'll take a portion of this gold and divert it to humanitarian groups who will um, use it to, to um uh, for reparations to Holocaust victims, which is pretty cool. The big outlier in this was a little tiny country that remained neutral during World War II, at least on paper, um, Switzerland, who not only, it turns out, was secretly assisting the Nazis in laundering their gold in exchange for money that the Nazis could go use to fund its war machine, they hung on to this Nazi gold, and from what I can tell, still have all of the Nazi gold that they had after uh, World War II, including gold that was made from that Zahn gold, melted down personal effects and gold teeth um, that Switzerland apparently still has in its gold reserves and is not willing to give up. Yeah, that was really surprising. Uh, This all came out because of a historical paper that was part of that conference. Um, It showed that the U.S. had a lot of this gold uh, that they melted down after the war and did return to the central banks in Europe mm-hmm. um, as part of an effort to stabilize their economy there. Right. Um, but finding out that Switzerland did this and that Switzerland was neutral and that the Geneva Convention, which explicitly bars this kind of thing, comes from Geneva, Switzerland, right. is like the ultimate irony here. And it's – I just want to know if there's more to this. There's got to be something else, right? They're, they're good people. Sure, but I mean, countries do bad things for sure. You know, even if there are good people that live there, there's, I mean, from everything I could tell, it came out in the 90s that it it was pretty clear Switzerland had served as money launderers for the Nazis without anybody realizing it for decades. 
yeah, it's it is pretty shocking for sure. Um, I think the thing that gets me though is the idea that there's a lot of gold in the international gold trade today that can be traced back to missing Nazi gold. That it's not necessarily buried in the the side of a mountain in Poland or right. under a small town along the German Czech border. That it's it's out and about. It's being used as currency or as a, a, a commodity today in the in the international gold trade. That to me is the most astounding part of all of this. Yeah, how do you trace gold? They have a, a very strict system for it, but it's only as strict as um, how it's observed. Oh, okay. So, like for example, in 2019, the Simon Wiesenthal Center, which um, spent a lot of time hunting down Nazi war criminals um, in the I think starting in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, they accused uh, Venezuela and specifically the uh, administration of Nicolas Maduro of trafficking in Nazi gold that he sold over the course of his administration so far, something like 77 tons of gold. And they're like, you know what? We're pretty sure that that was Nazi gold that was transferred late in the war to Spain and then on to South America to help fund a Fourth Reich, a rebuilding of the Nazi regime among the war criminals living there. And they think that this was some of that gold and that Maduro's been selling it to kind of bankroll his his country and his his, um, his regime. Wow. Isn't that nuts? It is nuts. They also, this whole thing is nuts. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. The The... Like, I, I can't remember how I came across this. I think it was a How Stuff Works article. There's a couple on them. And I just started digging further and further. And it's just one of those things where it's, it just takes such a great left turn. Great meaning, like, just surprising and yeah. unexpected. Where it's like, you know, you're going from treasure hunters arguing and kicking one another out of little towns and, and, and kicking around mountains in Poland to the international gold trade trafficking in Nazi gold still. It's, it's just... Just a crazy story. Yeah, it's it's pretty mind-blowing and disappointing in a lot of ways. Yeah, for sure. Because, again, remember, a lot of that gold, those gold bars are melted-down gold teeth taken from Holocaust victims or gold wedding rings taken from Holocaust victims, and now they're used to um, as, as part of an international form of currency. Yeah, boo. Boo. Um, well, that's it. You got anything else? I got nothing else. If you want to know more about um, Nazi gold, there's a lot you can read. It's quite a rabbit hole you can go down if you want to. Um, so you could start by going to HowStuffWorks.com and checking out their articles on it. And since I said HowStuffWorks, it's been a while. That means it's time for listener mail. That's right. Uh, I was thinking that would be a, a good movie about World War II era Nazi gold hunters, but... Um, it's sort of like Three Kings already did that, but that was a Gulf War. Yeah. Um, and then also there was that one museum men. I think they were brought in to kind oh, of right. make sure that the paintings that were looted were not yeah, yeah. or whatever. I didn't see that. What was it called? It wasn't called Museum Men. What was it? Almost positive it was Museum Men. Was it? Will you look that up while I read Listener Mail? All right. Because <laughs> that's a terrible name. I agree. Uh, I'm going to call this, uh, we cited someone that we probably shouldn't have cited and this is from Anonymous. Uh, hey, guys, really enjoyed this show this week on universal basic income. Just a heads up, you cited the conservative economist Charles Murray and his justifications for introducing UBI to the American economy. 
Uh, I'm sure you didn't realize this, but Murray is a particular favorite of white supremacists, oh boy, for his views on genetics and their contribution to social inequality between whites and people of color. Yeah, he has a book called The Bell Curve that is often cited as data-proven evidence for white supremacy. Uh, it's also largely been debunked as pseudoscience. Yeah. Uh, wow. He links to a Southern uh, Poverty Law Center's write-up for our own reference. And he says, I will no doubt keep on listening, guys. I'm sure it was unintentional. Please take more care, though, in curating your sources, especially if it might throw your narrative for a loop. And that is from uh, Anonymous. And boy, Anonymous, you are right. We had no idea. Um, should have done a little bit more digging there. So please, everyone, uh, realize, and anyone that listens to the show probably realizes, we certainly did not uh, mean for that to be the case when we cited Mr. Murray. No, we kind of biffed that one uh, big time. Uh, no offense intended. Hopefully you didn't take it. And thank you for a very measured and level and even-handed uh, correction. That's right. It was very kind. And by the way, Chuck, it's monuments, man. Yeah. I knew there was something about it that didn't sound right. But there is a show called Museum Men that's been on since 2014. <laughs> but they is actually... Is it about sexy docents? They kind of. They make um, displays for museums. Oh. They're craftsmen. Craftspeople. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So Museum Men, Monuments Men, two different things. That's right. And uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can join us on the internet. Send us an email. Wrap it up, spank it on the bottom, and send it off to stuffpodcast at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.